1: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Well,
1: ladies and gentlemen. Can I please have your attention? Daniel!
0: Your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so, yesterday, Guy uh, asked me, you know, is there anybody that you want to book for tomorrow? And I immediately responded, Starwald. Um, And he responded something like, "Lol, I should have guessed," or something like that. And and then it it kind of sunk in on me because I was so proud of myself having the counter programming with Megan Mcardle on the last one uh that we weren't going to talk about the speaker thing and blah 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 because we won't know the answers and then it occurred to me later in the day is like crap we're not going to know the answers for this podcast either <laughs> so um we are recording on day two of uh mccarthy damarung and uh <laughs> um and uh he's had it's three. it's a very
1: small got to damarung it's the tiniest got to damarung
0: that's right um and it's uh he lost three votes yesterday. Lost a little ground. They adjourned, and uh, they're going back at it at noon. We're recording at nine forty, and so I'm still, nonetheless, always excited and thrilled to have uh, my dear friend, um, back, uh, Chris Starwalt, back on the Remnant uh, for the first time since last year. So, uh, so welcome, Chris. Um, we're probably gonna have to speak in some generalities, some digressions. Uh, so basically what we normally do
1: i am very pleased to be with you because i know how much it hurts john podoritz and that's really the most important part i was listening to your other podcast and heard uh john uh, uh complaining that he was not the second most popular back, and it really sort of kicked my year off right really got me into 2023 on the right foot <laughs> We are allowed to mention the name Glop on this podcast. No, no, no. It's, it's legit. And, um, but, you know, this is the flagship po- podcast of El Dispacho. So I like to, you know.
0: True. True. Particularly now that 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 other pretender advisory opinions is going to be co-hosted by a New York, filthy New York Timesman
1: of the of the liberal New York Times.
0: Yeah. We might as well just call this podcast the French roast because he's <laughs> dead to me.
1: French leave. All right. So, um. Let's just do this like the old fashioned way. What would you make of yesterday, dude? I mean, it's true that when people listen to this, there may or may not, but there may be a House Speaker. Um, But it doesn't matter because the condition of the Republican Party uh, will remain the same. Circumstances will remain the same. And this is what I wrote for my dispatch column this week is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter doesn't matter.
0: And not just in the law, nothing matters. No, no, no,
1: no. In a a concrete sound, nothing matters. The Republicans enjoy a 1.04% advantage in the House of Representatives. The lower chamber of a bicameral uh, legislative branch. So they have half, they have the bottom half of one third of the government. Um, Joe Biden and the Democrats have the whip hand to... uh, Strong degree, because as the members of the Freedom Caucus have proven completely, this is not a functional majority. It's not a large enough majority to do anything interesting. You know, when John Boehner became speaker, that was a cool that was a cool gig to have. Right. Um, We didn't know what all was going to happen. But the Republicans had a majority the size of which uh, they had not seen since the 1920s. And the country seemed to be moving in their direction. And with that many more seats, you know, if you're in the 240s, Republicans have 222 seats. If you're in the 240s, you can tell Matt Gates to go oil his hair, right? You can say whatever. You can go on Steve Bannon's show 20 times a day. And we still won't care what you say or do. But when you're at five seats, then basically you're, you are a captive. You are at, at best a captive leader. So this is not a speakership worth having. And if I am Steve Scalise or I am Elise Stefanik waiting behind Kevin McCarthy, I look at this and I say, well, this guy, whatever happens, whether he goes down now or he goes down later, I will, it, there's a, um, a thing about golf courses, which is nobody makes money who builds a golf course. The guy who buys it out of bankruptcy, though, <laughs> he, he nails it. Um, And I think that's the situation Kevin McCarthy's in now, whether he gets it or doesn't get it. So
0: last night on the Dispatch Live, uh, Sarah Isger uh, asked me if I were a member of Congress, would I vote for Kevin McCarthy? And my initial reaction was first of all, the horrible sort of rapid-fire cinematic montage of bad decisions I must have made in this alternate universe to be a member of Congress. But, uh, um... To say nothing of the voters of your district. Yes. Um, (laughs) And, uh... uh, You know, but for 10 billion weird decisions I didn't make, I could be Elise Stefanik. Um, and, uh... But no, I I said, yeah, I think I would, because it doesn't matter. You know, partly influenced by your argument, and um, and then on the other hand, but then I just started this shame spiral about, well, what I, because it doesn't matter why not. Right. So, I mean, that's sort of the, this logic. I was thinking about, you know, I, I part of my problem with, with saying I would vote against them is I don't like most, not all, but most of the people who are voting against him. I don't like their motives. I don't like their style of politics. Um, I have my disagreements was like, I think Chip Roy comes at this stuff sincerely, but I think it's, he's still wrong. Uh But at the same time, like, if you're one of those guys and you know it doesn't matter, um, why not do this? Right. I mean, like, what what is the what 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 is the reason for not
1: making a spectacle? OK, so if you were in Congress, we would have a much cooler Congress and it would be a reflection of a, a much healthier uh, democracy there
0: would be at least one smoke filled room i can tell you that yes right exactly now.
1: <laughs> we would just we would just constantly be uh, cigar clam baking in your office and it would be it would be great but uh, uh one of the sm- smartest insider long time hill guy um who is who is left but who i i i rely on for good insights a guy who is uh, as we would say in west virginia been to the fair and seen the elephant um, he has a saying which is the last courageous decision that almost every member of Congress ever makes is to run for Congress, right? When they file that paperwork, they screw their courage to the sticking place. We're going to go run for Congress. That's it. And everything after that is a cascade of what am I afraid of and who can hurt me and what do I need to do in order to stay where I am? So I am sure, let's say, let's take Sarah's uh, premise to an even more ridiculous degree, that you and I are both in Congress. And I am representing Northern West Virginia, and you are representing Southern Manhattan. And we are in your office uh, with a couple of—I don't know what your preferred brand would be for that occasion. I like a, a shorter, blonder cigar than you do, I think. But and we're puffing away, and we might say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for you. That's who I'm going to vote for. I'm going to vote for you for speaker. You say, well, then I'll vote for you. And it'll be a couple of protest votes we'll throw out there and it won't be voting present, but it'll just be a way to say, I don't accept, I don't accept that the premise is either Jim Jordan or Kevin McCarthy. I don't accept that premise. And that's like, you know, I wrote in my sister for the 2020 presidential election. She would be a very fine, Jenny McCarthy, or McCarthy, sorry, uh, Jenny McIntyre would be a very, very fine president of the United States, but it didn't really catch fire. Uh, but that was my way of saying I don't find that either of these candidates acceptable, and that's okay, and I think that's fine.
0: So last night, uh, one, um, Donald J. Trump cracked the whip, posted something on um that thing, and um, he spoke. I mean, just. Uh, I I, I I hate bringing up Truth Social because there's a wordplay thing in there that I've tried several times to really nail the irony of living in a post-truth era. That he posts truths on Truth Social, and it's just like it, there's something there, you know,
1: a, a post-truth truth post. Yes, and it's it, but it's, it's it's
0: it's 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 sort of like you know we just now found out that he wanted to trademark the phrase rigged election. Come on, yeah some of this stuff is so on the nose for like a Chris Buckley novel that it, it it kind of offends me. Um, do you, do
1: you, do you remember when, uh, the Republicans, uh, when Trump said, we got to call it the cuts, cuts, tax, jobs, jobs, tax, tax, cut, cut, jobs, jobs (laughs) act. And they were like, okay, they're like writing it down. They're like, well, all right. Um, We'll, we'll we'll get that over to the congressional budget office we'll have that put that we'll retitle that you're like oh boy oh boy but so he, he he
0: says everybody get with the program get on board blah 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 blah, which we'll know today at noon so i mean this is the problem again it's my fault uh um but if the 20 don't go back to mccarthy Then what juice does Trump claim to have anymore, right?
1: Well, it is, uh, It is. I assume, that that uh, social media post on the 25th most popular social media platform uh, in America, I assume, came after long, desperate pleading, cavailing from Team McCarthy. We need it. We need it. Please, please, please. I don't, you know, I don't, uh, my sources, my sourcing inside Mar-a-Lago is thin. Uh, but, uh, please, you know, my God, please, 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 please. And this represents Trump. Uh, this, this is, uh, uh, right now as, as of this recording, uh, this is a pro forma, like, yep, it's, and he, he said, maybe it'd be good. Maybe it'd be great. I don't know. Vote, for, vote, vote for Kev. And that is, well, if that's enough to change any of the 20, I not not any, enough of the 20, I would be very surprised. But the target audience for that tweet, truth, are the next 20 or 30 members. So the way to think about the Republican conference is that next door to the Freedom Caucus, and a lot of these guys are going to be in the Republican Study Committee, but they're, and they're like Freedom Caucus adjacent. And they just they're terrified that their votes for McCarthy are gonna cost them their seats in the next primary, right? And they're terrified that this is gonna stick and that those 20 aren't going away and they're gonna ha- and then when they run for reelection in their primary, their challenger is going to say, She voted 20 times in favor of Kevin McCarthy. And that is what those members are thinking about because they are craven to an astonishing degree. They're not courageous enough to go stand with the real loop-de-loos. Uh, so they're hovering out there just behind them. Trump's statement gives them cover to stay there, right? They can stay there voting for McCarthy a little longer because it's like, well, I, you know, President Trump ordered me, Right? rightfully elected President, uh, President in Exile Trump ordered me to vote for Kevin McCarthy. I was, only, I was only following orders. That works for some of them. Now, Trump is not what he once was. Trump is not what he once was six months ago. There's a pill for that. I'm yeah. sorry, go on. Contact <laughs> your doctor if your <laughs> MAGA lasts more than four hours. Um, taking this from a Trump perspective, right? If McCarthy does lose, it's another black eye for Trump. Trump is continuing to back McCarthy because he thinks what the conventional wisdom thinks, which is that McCarthy will eventually prevail, right? That they will wheedle and winnow the 19 down to four at whatever point. Um, And if you want to talk about how dumb this is, the central, the the, the conjured argument, right? This is a dispute looking for a reason, not a reason that led to a dispute is the motion to vacate the chair. So prior to, please excuse me for talking about things that don't matter, but it, it matters tangentially. Prior to Nancy Pelosi retaking the speakership, the rule since the earth had cooled in the House was, any member could always make a privileged motion to vacate the chair. And that was what Mark Meadows did to John Boehner. Uh, and that's how Boehner pulled hit. This, this, is, this will be instructive. So when John Boehner quit and pulled the rug out from underneath the Freedom Caucus, um, he didn't have to do it then. He still had enough juice, right? He still had enough power, uh, that he could say to members, and I think uh Boehner even talked publicly about this. Um, I don't want to betray anything that anybody's told me, but that members like Trey Gowdy or whomever said, I'm gonna vote for you for speak When when they when they moved to vacate the chair, when Mark Meadows uh uh, master tactician that he is moves to vacate the chair. I'm going to vote for you, but it's probably going to cost me my seat in the next primary, but that's okay. I'll do it because these guys are bad and wrong and mean, and you've been honest with me and I'm going to just, I'm I'm going to do it. And they w- And when Pelosi came in the second time, she said, we're not doing that anymore. And I forget what it is, but it basically functions like the 25th amendment uh, I, it's leadership has to make the motion. It has, it's, it's much more executive than legislative. So the Freedom Caucus wants it back to one. And McCarthy, in a particularly desperate kind of pleading on New Year's Eve, said, what if I said five? What if I said you needed five members? Now, this is, of course, dumb because if you have enough members to have a credible motion to vacate the chair, you have more than five. You have 213 more than five. So this is, this was, uh, here's how I would, if I were Kevin McCarthy, how I would get out of this. I would just say, you know what? You're right. It's one. You win. It's one. Let's just wrap it up here because it doesn't make any difference. The reason McCarthy doesn't want to do that is that the guys who are keeping him alive, and here we talk about serious humans, Tom Cole from Oklahoma, Mike McCall, We could go down the list, uh, you know, what's his name? Dave Joyce from Ohio, uh, Don Bacon, guys who legislate, guys who are, guys and gals who are committee chairs. They're serious about this stuff. They don't like Kevin McCarthy. They're not excited about the McCarthy era of leadership, but they do believe that paying your dues and following the rules should have a reward. And every time McCarthy bends the knee to the, you know, uh, Cuckoo Bird caucus, that really irritates <laughs> that really irritates the normals
0: no it's i mean the 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 I had not thought about the Trump protecting the next twenty point, which I think is a very good one um, what do you think I was, what do you think is going to happen i mean like i'm very frustrated with myself about doing this right before something's going to happen because like th- th- this, this, this podcast prides itself on not being dated material but
1: um this is our material is so excellent that it couldn't it couldn't possibly be dated. Uh, what but what I would what I would guess is going to happen about an hour and a half after we finish this is they'll have another vote and it won't be enough. Right. Maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll be more. Maybe it'll be whatever, but that it won't be for McCarthy. And I think this. So if McCarthy gets it, I suspect it will take a long time. And it will be basically the old bulls sitting with their arms crossed and saying, we'll be here, we'll be here as long as you guys want, as long as you want. Because the problem, of course, for the Freedom Caucus is once you are, once you have undertaken blackmail, right, or extortion, how do you stop? Where's, Where's your like, okay, now we're good. Thanks a lot. They don't have a reason yet. And it's certainly not a truth from Donald Trump they don't have a reason yet to say, we have won. We have gotten what we wanted. And now we can go back to our crazy primary voters. Because if you think the next 20s primary voters are crazy, what do you what do you think a uh, Lauren Boebert primary voter is like, right? Um, so they need something to say, we did it. We have accomplished the thing that we wanted. And the way that, let me, I'll do it this way. The way McCarthy goes down is like this. The the dam starts to break and it goes from 19 to 29 to 30, whatever. And it's there. And that's when they call the account, right? This is, it's like the end of trading places. Uh, and they say, you know, you know the policy of the exchange, Mr. Duke. And Kevin McCarthy will then have to live by the rules that he used to get Twice, right to the one-yard line of being speaker, and they'll say you're going to have to go away, and it's going to be Steve Scalise or it's going to be Elise Stefanik. We're going to put them forward, and then two things can happen: the Freedom Caucus can say we did it, we defeated the hated Kevin McCarthy, and number two, it doesn't sit on. McCarthy's problem has been he's just sat on the shelf forever, right? He is the he is the uh, Microsoft Zune, uh, where you're like. Is it going to be the Zoom? And you're like, I maybe next Christmas. What if we repackage it and put it back out, and it's still the Zoom? And uh, you know, I think it's uh, my my opinion is that it's still more likely to be Kevin McCarthy than any one individual. Uh, but that it'll probably take some time for them to to go through this. Um, but his percentage, uh, his his percentage, is of course lower now than it was a day ago. So,
0: first of all, you forgot one part of the scenario you described, which is that they have to drag Kevin McCarthy screaming like the Duke brothers, turn those machines back on! Turn those machines back on!
1: <laughs> um, but um, Randolph, your brother's very ill!
0: <laughs> um, I'm not going to use an expletive here. Uh, <laughs> so, here's... A, here's uh, Sarah and I were agreed on this. We both had the same sense last night, that Absent knowing, you know, maybe someone said to McCarthy, look, you got to adjourn, we got to figure something out, and they figured they'll do it because otherwise the Republicans would have turned on a more, maybe, that, maybe it made sense. But it seemed to me the McCarthy strategy of grinding it out with vote after vote after vote never made sense in terms of forcing the 20, enough of the 20, to flip to McCarthy. But it always seemed to make some sense to me that like the Democrats might just start leaving after like
1: two days, right? Like, like, this is more fun. This is the most fun the Democrats will have in the next two years.
0: Yeah, but they got like, they got their families there,
1: right? You know, and some of them, you know, just, it
0: seems to me like I don't giving people the night off doesn't help the McCarthy, the, the, the announced McCarthy strategy, which was. To wear people down like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and, you know, it just, it seems like it, in retrospect, it's going to turn out to be a tactical error.
1: But maybe I'm wrong. I would watch, I one time watched the St. Louis Cardinals defeat the Atlanta Braves in a playoff game. I could not even get seated and have my steak brought to me at the Palm. Watch Sitting at the bar at the Palm to watch the game. The, I couldn't even get a bite of steak in before the Cardinals had a 10 run lead. Now I would have watched that game for 20 hours. If they would have played that game and the Cardinals would have won by a hundred runs, I would have, I would have eaten two steaks uh, because it would be that good. And so the Democrats are just thrilled. They are, nothing is better than this because as soon as this is over, then they get to have their own goat rodeo, right? As soon as this is over, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and company have been waiting to say like, Oh, you think these are the only attention-hogging weirdos who will engage in wild stunts to be on television? Hold my Chablis. Uh, and that happens as soon as this is over. Number two, I don't think it was McCarthy who wanted the adjournment. Tom Cole is the gravitational center of the Republican conference. He has been there since, you know, the, the earth cooled. He has been there since... Fr- uh, he he has, as I used to say, he's been there since Robert Byrd was knee-high to a pork barrel. Uh, and he is like the Pepperidge Farm guys uh, there in the Republican conference. So after all the idiots do all the talking, then it's the E.F. Hutton moment. Tom, what, do you, wh- what, what did you do? It's like, well, now when Newt Gingrich was going down over the debt dun- and he had this book royalty deal. And they're like, oh, my God. And then you did what? It's like, yep. But then the next speaker-designee, he came forward and he had, had been having an affair of his own. And institutional memory counts for a lot, and and credibility counts for a lot. Cole is really credible. So you think he needed to make the early bird special at sizzler, and was like, let's get out of here, <laughs> Jonah? If there was a sizzler near the Capitol, I would have been there. So don't 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 kid a kidder. The uh, I think this is McCarthy is caught between two things, right? He has the old bulls on the one side who are willing to back him for the sake of the institution, for the sake of propriety, right? It's his turn. This is what's correct. This is discipline. This is how you get your committee chairmanship. This is how you keep your committee chairmanship, that you work through the system. And on the other side, he's caught against basically America's terrible primary election system. Um, if you ever want to know, if you ever want to really encapsulate how dumb our primary system is, this speaker debacle. So again, it's a thing of very little value. It doesn't matter. And by the way, if this was a more valuable speakership, if the Republicans had 245 seats and control of the Senate, how this went would be very different, right? Because the pressure on the holdouts would be much greater. Now it's like, I don't care, and I don't care enough about Kevin, and I don't care enough about, like, who cares? Um, so it, the drift is in part due to the very low stakes. But the problem here has nothing to do with any policy or any rule of the House. I take Chip Roy totally at his word that he finds Kevin McCarthy's 45-page, uh, reads like one of my uh, pre-Thanksgiving term papers turned in in a desperate effort to get home on time uh kind of rule stacks that are and by the way with McCarthy very often it's just a lot of talking points mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's a real it's real uh it's not even word salad it's like wor, uh word mashed cauliflower and if I I'd take Chip Roy totally at his word that he looked at that and said, this is a too little, too late. It's a joke. It's not what we want. I think there are a lot of people, and by the way, not just in the Freedom Caucus, who sincerely want good rules for the House, better rules for the House of Representatives. The rules as constructed represent one of the greatest breaches of trust, right? So the 2010 Republican takeover, we're gonna read the bills. We're going to hold him over for three days. We're going to let the uh, house work its will. We're going to do all that stuff. Well, that all went out the window, and they never got back to it. And because it's hard and it's chaotic and it opens up opportunities for your enemies and people get scared. But this is about primary election talking points. So last night after they left, what did what did those Freedom Caucus members and what did the next twenty and and the rest of the Republican uh conference go do. They watched Tucker Carlson. <laughs> they they read Mark Levin's tweet thread. They looked at like okay, who's holding where? What what are my primary election liabilities here? What are the radicals in my district hearing and thinking right now and do I have enough cover to stay here? All right, so I want to get off of this,
0: but one last thing is it 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 vexes me and I I I made this point on CNN last night. I I uh I actually watched a lot of the coverage flipped around during the day. Cause, My condolences. Yeah, and uh, um, actually, I like I like going on TV for these kinds of events because there's no preparation you can do. It's like you just watch TV and see what happens, right? And um, and it's one of the few areas in life where actually being on Twitter is a where Twitter is an actual resource. It's very rare, but you got all these hill rats who are all tweeting, you know, their conversations and it's, it's whatever, but uh so many people on every network they keep describing the original 19 as the 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 hard right the 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 not they don't say true conservatives but like the you know this conservative revolt the most conservative um and again you got to keep saying like chip roy aside and maybe one or two others of those guys on that list but like Steve Scalise is, and and even Kevin McCarthy is just as conservative, more conservative than Matt Gates, right? I mean, and you you can't even say it's a pro Trump anti Trump thing because first of all, Kevin McCarthy spelunked so far up Donald Trump's anterior that you know he tickled his sphincter to tie his shoes, and so like, and then you and Marjorie Taylor Greene is as a as as is so uh uh you know is 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 a full-on super Trumper,
1: right? And and Bobert is too, but they're on opposite sides of this, right? I I can I just say about Marjorie Taylor Green. She's grown. I love when people tell you how it is. Marjorie Green telling people how it is. Well, let me tell you how it is. See, this is how Congress works, and you're like, really? Is that so? <laughs> Now, what about the people who told you how it was? Were they I I remember I was uh, I read the art, the great excerpt uh, from Draper's book about Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and the Kevin McCarthy's courtship of her. And this was like it, it was her almost childlike realization of like, so here's the thing. If you suck up to powerful people, then you have more power and then you can do more stuff. And you're like, wait. (laughs) <laughs> this is crazy talk. I had no idea that that's how politics work. So the, there is a it's, it, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a distinctly uncharming person, but there is almost a charming naivete in a woman who is like, guys, wait, if we just stick together and support the most sensible position, then we'll all do better and have more power. You're like, <laughs> you got it, sister.
0: No, there is like, I, I don't mean to be too condescending to, to, to the intern class. Uh but we've been around for a while now. I had a rich career as an intern in various places. There is a certain arrogance of the intern that you encounter from time to time in Washington, not always to be sure, where because they've just discovered something, they think no one else ever discovered it, and they talk that way and um you get that from her a lot
1: and i'm sure you I'm sure you and I were the me certainly were the same way with twenty one year old me was so dumb. Because I believe that history um, began in approximately 1981. Like that, prior to that, nothing had really happened. Um, uh, My Jessica and I uh, were talking once about the fact that we're watching Magnum PI because we are sophisticates. Uh, And I said, you know, when they're recording this, the Vietnam War had ended only (laughs) nine years prior to that, more recently than the Iraq War had ended for us. But when I was a kid watching that, they're like, why are they talking about Vietnam all the time? Like that was, that was the same as Korea and the second world war. And the first that was like ancient history. Why are these guys talking about this? So that, that I call, so I call this the Magnum PI effect.
0: No, it's funny. Like in, in comic books, like, uh, you know, the thing in the F- fantastic four, the big orange brick guy, right? Yeah. Made out of rocks. Yeah. Uh, he was off, He was an ace pilot in world war II. <laughs> and I remember, you know, like I would read these comic books that were like five years younger than me. Right. So I mean, older than me, like from the mid 60s, I was born in 69. And they're talking about how you fought in World War Two. And it was like, you know, how old? I mean,
1: that means the sky is, you know, ancient. 150. And yeah. But that but but that is if I just can can pause here just for one second. The whole thing about. We live through momentous occasions and historical moments. And we're like, okay, got it. Moving on. What's next? And this is very much a journalist bias. Okay, got it. And uh, my old boss, Stephen Smith, uh, would say, don't run past the story. And as people, and especially as journalistic people, we do run past the story. Like, okay, COVID, done, got it. Okay, January 6th, okay, got it. And we keep wanting to move on. And this and, and we haven't even come to terms with the consequences yet. So I think where the Republicans are right now is they have been trying to turn corners for years, right? Like we're turning the corner, but they keep running right into the same wall. And until they process through and do and like suffer the consequences and get through it, they'll never turn any corners.
0: I agree with your larger point entirely. I, I will say I do think that the speaker vote thing is something that in ten days from now will be like, oh they, oh yeah, that happened. Remember, remember that. You know, it's it's not going to be. I could be wrong, but like the idea that it is going to be is going to loom large in our historical memory. Uh, this is one of the things that drive me, drove me crazy about all the coverage yesterday. Is people were talking about how it's historic. Yeah, okay, so it happened. It hasn't happened for a hundred years. Lots of things don't happen for a hundred years, and. I kept hearing the fra- phrases like and until they elect a speaker, they won't be able to do the, the work of the American people. And, and until they elect a speaker, they won't be able to get common sense legislation across. And but as soon like, as they
1: have a speaker, look out. They still won't
0: <laughs> A <laughs> landslide
1: <laughs> of common sense. They're going to deal with inflation. They're going to deal with China. They're going to deal. Goodbye, deficit. This is the only thing holding us back, because surely that uh, if if our team can't elect a captain, surely as soon as we finish with the captaincy vote, we will then strive united into the much more complex and nuanced questions. Um, but just on, on this point, do you uh, to get back
0: to the ideological points so that we can get out of here? Nomenclatural. Can you make it? Can you make an adverb out of nomenclature? Do you think there's anything to this idea that like voting against McCarthy proves you're more conservative, or is it just because this is another journalistic problem, right? Is wanting to impose this notion that the more unreasonable you are about process, the more ideologically committed you are um, about something? Well, on the left and the right, and it's just a stupid way of
1: thinking about. it. It's Cruzism. That's Cruzism. Um, yeah. I. Uh, first, totally agree with your assessment about the relative value of this as, as an event. I found myself in a very weird position last night, which is I go on Chris Cuomo's show on News Nation and I find myself having to talk him into being interested. He does his whole opening monologue. He's like, This is dumb. It doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I agree. But why am I here? So I like find myself in my segment, like, well, though interesting, like I, 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 it it was, uh, it was just desserts for me to be me, the normal poo pooer, to be in the position of unpoo pooing. I hate being out poo pooed. It just, it's really brutal. Seldom does it happen to me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I like to think of myself as the number one poo pooer in uh, the biz, or I guess number two.
0: Uh, sort of reminds me. One of my favorite scenes from The Simpsons is when they're on a movie set for something, and Homer sees. The Teamsters, um, yeah, who are like leaning up against one of the stars' vans, eating lunch, and um, and he gets all giddy. He's like, he's seen a movie star because he's seen Teamsters, and he's like, oh, Teamsters, I love Teamsters. They're so surly and lazy. <laughs> and he runs over, and they have a yawning and stretching
1: contest to see who can lounge better. Well, he's he 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 was up against the best. He was up against the best. Um, but. I have a, in one of my many um, bootless uh, efforts, we, people, journalists of Goodwill, people of Goodwill need a better nomenclature role. uh, We need a better lexicon for how to talk about where people are politically right now. So the reason that some people want to talk about how conservative, like I love when people talk about conservatives like Josh Hawley. And I say, do you mean the guy who wants to nationalize the tech companies and who had a plan to give everybody, to shut down the economy and have the federal government print trillions of dollars during COVID? That guy? That's a conservative? So part of the reason people want to say that is so that they can damn conservative. It's just one thing, right? There's only one thing here. There's conservatives that include Uh, By the way, this uh, uh, Scott Perry, the head of the Freedom Caucus, the new chairman of the Freedom Caucus, this guy is all the way live. I mean, he is full Michael Flynn, next level, bizarro world, like, wow, Nazi comparisons and the the whole shebangy bang. That's not conservative. That's radical, right? He's a radical Republican with extreme views. Um, So what I... So putting him in the same boat, saying he is the same as uh, Mike Gallagher, right? That he is, that they're both conservatives, therefore they're they're the same, is either ignorant or uh, a, an attempt to smear or malign one entire, the, what I would say is probably the plurality viewpoint of most Americans. Most Americans are more conservative than they are anything else uh, because they're, That's how that's how people think. Um, So I do this. I'd say that on the right, you have nationalists and you have conservatives uh, to varying degrees with some overlap here and some overlap there. But I use the term nationalist to refer to these guys because if I take them seriously. And, I, and I, I'm and using Chip Roy, I'm sorry to use Chip Roy so much, but as a stand-in, I think he's sincere. I just think there are people who are more willing to use national power and authority, the power of the government to engineer outcomes than others, right? I think nationalism is marked by a desire to use power to create outcomes that they believe are in the best interests of the greatest number of Americans. And I'll grant it and I'll say that and I'll say it's nationalistic and that's cool. And then I delineate those people from conservatives on the grounds that conservatives are, as George Will taught us, there to conserve the principles of the founding, the portion of the enlightenment that is best captured by the miracle of our founding and that they want to keep that. That's what a conservative does is in American politics, try to conserve the virtues of the founding. And this is our straight Lincoln to Coolidge to Reagan line and all that jazz. On the other side, you have a similar schism, right? You have liberals who believe in the gifts of the Enlightenment, who believe in human freedom. Uh, they believe in a more capacious view. Uh, they they are to invoke for our first Yuval Levin invocation here. Uh, they're on the Thomas Paine side of the Edmund Burke-Thomas Paine schism of long ago. More democracy, more stuff, but still the dignity of the individual and of human rights. Then you have the nationalist counterpart, which are the progressives, who believe that we need to use power to do the right things. We have to have more power and more authority, and that if we focus on individual rights and individual liberties, then we will miss the opportunities to make great leaps forward, uh, and that we will miss out on the chance to do these things. And I think I don't mean to slight the nationalists and I don't mean to slight the progressives, but there's clearly a difference between progressives and liberals and conservatives and nationalists. And I think that's where we are now. And I think it would be very helpful to talk about it in those terms instead of, well, conservatives like Ben Sass and Marjorie Taylor Greene.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, look, I, I agree with all of that. And we could go deep in the weeds in some of it. Um Um, I just think there's also, there's, there are, there's a whole other matrix that you can imply, apply over this, which makes it, you know, uh, you know, our ilk loves those, you know, those sort of four square boxes where, you know, move on the X axis towards this and Y axis towards that. But the problem with it is, is that, um, like you met, you name dropped Michael Flynn, right? Michael Flynn's ideology is so secondary or tertiary mm-hmm. to his animating passions that it's almost silly to talk about That's right. what does Michael fin- Flynn believe, right? That's because right. the question, the, 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 the matrix there, if we're going to do it in a sort of a four box kind of thing, he is, or two by two, whatever those McKinsey jackwads say, <laughs> um, <laughs> is, uh, Spe- speaking
1: of Ben ass,
0: um, uh, I didn't go there. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the, the X, Y axis for, for Flynn is, um, crazy and grifter, right? It's like, how much does he actually believe this stuff? And how much is he just monetizing the crazy of other people and ideological stuff? I mean, yeah, I guess he's, he's clearly more of a nationalist than a conservative, but like, you know, um, I hear that, you know, Charles Manson was a huge ham a fan of Montesquieu. I mean, it just doesn't <laughs> matter,
1: right? You know see um, when uh they're throwing down they they say, "You know what? I've just had it with you people, Rene Descartes, I turn my back <laughs> on thou no more um the conversation about the labels applies to politicians. The conversation about the voters is very, very different because people are not very ideological. People are just not very ideological. They're tribal. They are reactive. They are easily frightened. (laughs) Uh, And they make decisions based on, you know, who would you vote for, for Speaker of the House? If you asked for, if you, so if you ask somebody on the street, they might say Donald Trump. They might say, Whatever. Who knows what they might say? Because they're thinking about of everybody in the world who I would like to be Speaker of the House. I would like to be somebody other than this. This Beltway lizard or that Beltway lizard, which victim of Potomac fever uh, do I want to be the Speaker of the House? Well, neither of them. I would like somebody else. Um, And the truth is. Most Americans don't care. About ideological anything. We care about ideological anything because we know that if there are not guidelines, um, this is, I guess, since David French is going to the New York Times, I'm going to have to pick up the slack on this stuff. The reason I don't go to a non denominational church is that I want guardrails. Um, my pastor is awesome. I am at the church that I attend because I have an awesome pastor. David Glade is wonderful. But I like – I'm not uh, ethnically Anglican, uh, but uh, I'm an ethnic Presbyterian. uh, But I like having a church that has rules and has doctrinal structure because in challenging times or when a pastor leaves or when something goes wrong – having those denominational boundaries there prevents it like, well, this is Ted's church and whatever Ted thinks that Ted wants to do, then that, that's what we're going to do. We're going to build a rock climbing wall and we're all going to have little microphones. Uh, the, the, the pastor crew will have little little flesh colored microphones on their face and we're going to sing uh sexy love songs to Jesus. And cause that's what pastor Ted wants. I like those structural guidelines. So for voters, these are not arguments that matter, but for, you and me and for the members of Congress, this is why we have to debate this stuff and talk about these things because this is how we can say, Oh, 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 what was that that you just said? Where are you going on that? That's, and that's, that's the lame part, the, the lame, but uh worthwhile part of, of the work we do.
0: Do you ever, are are you a fan of the office? Yes. Yes. Sure. Cause I've been re my daughter's back from school and we were rewatching it. And, um, and we started this debate, which I, I brought to Twitter and I did one of those prove me wrong tweets and, uh, no one's proven me wrong, but if you're not a close student of it, this may be, uh, a waste of both of our time, but, um, um, actually there's really no such thing as a waste of our time, a waste of the listener's time. Um, uh, um, I've decided that of the main characters, right? The recurring characters over many seasons. So not like the cameos, not Todd Packer, who I think is hilarious. Um, but uh, Ryan, the yeah. The, yeah, the snake, is the worst human being on, on the show. The yeah. le- least redeeming one. And a bunch of people came out and said, what about Kelly? And I was like, eh, no, she's a <laughs> dummy. Yeah. And sort of in a, in a, in a victim of a, of a corrupt culture in some yeah. ways, but and, yeah. and BJ Novak character, I think is the most evil one. Um, but I was hoping you were going to disagree with me. Cause then we could argue about that for 10 minutes.
1: No, the, uh, the, the great thing, I, I was late with the office cause you, you, Talked about this before, but you know you've had the experience where you can't enjoy a band because you hate their fans too much or their mm-hmm. fans are too annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my Bruce Springsteen effect. Occasionally, mm-hmm. I'll catch myself listening to Bruce Springsteen and be like, "Oh, that's pretty good." Then be like, "Oh, it's the people who tell me how much they love Bruce Springsteen that yeah, yeah." Impossible. Then you then you
0: listen to Michael Strain talking about Bruce Springsteen, right? And you're, and like, you're like, "Like, right, I'm, I'm done out. with this guy for the year." Uh, this, yeah. this
1: and this is true of many many bands. uh It took me, for example, a long time to get to the point where I could admit that I love the band. Yes, because it had a fan base attachment that I was that we'll put it this way. Sleeveless jean jacket standing outside of McLean's Velvomatic on national road was not the demo that I identified with in high school. Um, Anyway, I, I rejected the office for the same reason I've never seen the movie Titanic. It was too popular. It was too everybody. You have to see it. And I was like, do I, but it's inescapable in our culture, and I really came to like it. What I really came to like about it, the winsomeness of the office are people who are, you know, uh, Richard Thaler, the father of behavioral economics, his line is, we don't think that people are stupid. We think life is hard. And what the office reinforces over and over again is, this is hard. And it's hard for everybody. It is not a story about people who are like this guy's nailing it even the even the even the protagonist even uh John Krasinski has struggle after mistake after failure after all of this to get and getting it wrong uh and living in that and that's the thing is that the the humanness of it um th- their suckitude uh is endearing and humane yeah and 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 again that's why i think Ryan stands out because
0: particularly after the first like season and a half he just becomes a truly bad person in a way that nobody else is. Everybody has bad facets. Um, uh, you know, like I could not be friends for long with Michael Scott, even though I think, you know, in his heart, he's a decent guy. Um, but he would just drive me crazy. Um,
1: um, but Ryan is just like, he becomes a cokehead. He's a jerk. He's, he's- Jan, uh, Jan, the uh, Michael's girlfriend slash boss. She's, she's not a great person. He's not a great but- person. But she's, she's, but she is at least, I think what makes Ryan such a bet is that he's a serpent, right? He is, he is knowing, he is knowledgeable. He is not failing into things. He chooses evil, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. He, he woke up and chose violence.
0: But, uh, anyway, I just, uh, my problem with watching the office is, is it's funny. My daughter says that there's like an Instagram account or a TikTok account, something like that where it just catalogs all the moments in the office where an employee would be fired. And now when I watch it, it's like three times an episode, somebody does something that would at least get you fired. And at least once an episode, somebody does something that could get you sued or criminally prosecuted. Um, but so one of my favorite German words is from and from is, uh, that feeling of being embarrassed for
1: somebody else who doesn't oh, know that they one. should be embarrassed. That's an excellent one. So it's the, so it's, it's really the opposite of schadenfreude, right? It's yeah. really like, I'm not enjoying this person's discomfort. I'm feeling it for them and they don't even know it. It's cringe by proxy.
0: Right. Oh. And um, like what, there's so many scenes in the office where Michael Scott does things that make me physically squirm in my chair. And I don't find like i can I can intellectually think it's funny and occasionally laugh at it, but it makes me so uncomfortable um that it takes me like three or
1: four viewings of some of these things to finally let it go by so the office came at the tail end of the last era of common culture right um I can't tell you I could not list five- five shows that are on broadcast television now right i but i have no 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 way to if if we exclude sports and news. Uh I don't certainly no I don't even, I don't even think there are five sitcoms left. I mean I don't think it
0: makes sitcoms now.
1: No, I bet it, CBS is cranking out terrible sitcoms night after I bet they're bombarding the 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 hillsides with amazingly bad sitcoms, but I, that tells you how little I know. The Office was one of the last escapees, right? From the end of the common culture at the turn of the century. Um and comedy so hard right now, uh I do love that there has been a revitalization of stand up uh and Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr and a number of people who have really and I love that Jerry Seinfeld continues to like tour <laughs> and do stand up and we've seen a real reinvigoration of stand up and certainly, I don't want anyone to know the number of hours in a month that I watch funny Instagram videos it's a lot. Uh, that's all I'm there. I'm there for pictures of my friends, uh, birthdays and kids, uh, and funny videos and things, bears trying to get into bird feeders, etc. But in terms of scripted comedy, it's a real kind of suck hole out there. I don't, I, I, do you see any place that somebody is writing some, whether it's a movie or whether it's a show, where is their scripted comedy? I mean, there's Ted Lasso, right? I mean, there's that kind of stuff. Yeah, but they gave up on being funny right yeah. away they went immediately to the the pathos and they got a therapist and it went from like this is a funny fish out of water story to like ted lasso is our teacher yeah
0: now he he has become a, a a kind of a greeting card in human form um no i agree i i, I feel like you can find Comedy. If you're gonna go look for, it. I mean, apparently co- comedy podcasts are huge. Um, I don't really listen to any of them. Um, no, but what I was gonna say is, like, I'm a big fan of that era of sitcom, of the sort of, um, Office, Parks and Recreation, Thirty Rock, Thirty Rock, and Arrested Development are two of the funniest things. And you know, the, the classic line from Mel Brooks when people say about Blazing Saddles. They tell him, you know, you couldn't make that today. And Mel Brooks says, you couldn't make it then. Uh,
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. It wasn't like Paramount said, oh, I love all of the use of the N-word. That is a delight. But
0: the thing is, is that there is something that, and it's, it's a change of the on the progressive left. The progressive left has decided that being funny is problematic, and there are even comedians who consider themselves post humor um which I think is there's like always been
1: there's been a lot of comedians I considered post humor for a long time
0: and um but they didn't right now it 's like, intentional, right, and like um and I find that just you know our friend Noah Rothman has written some stuff about this, but like you go back and you look at thirty rock or 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 even Parks and Rec at the things that they could say. Or the office. I mean, I just watched this episode recently where Michael Scott brings two waitresses from Benny Hana back to the Christmas party, and he gets into trouble because he he likes he likes one of them wants one of them to be his girlfriend, but he can't tell them apart, even though that they're completely different Asian people. And I don't know that you could make that today, right? And even though the joke is all about really on on him and how he's like a pig and all that kind of stuff, and. Um, he ended up solving the problem by making a little mark on a pen on one of their arms. It's like how you're f- refusing to laugh, but, um, <laughs> like I, 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 think there's something serious to be written about like 30 rock Liz lemon. It takes you a little while to realize it, but like Liz lemon is actually the horrible person and not Jack Donaghy in 30 rock and Jack Donaghy actually has his act together and he's helpful and he wants to be a mentor and he does good things and
1: you may not like his politics and all that and Liz Lemon hates herself and hates life and hates people and right where uh, where where do the where does the cast of Seinfeld end up in the last episode that's right well they go on trial for not being good samaritans jail <laughs> they 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 uh, Jerry Seinfeld puts them in jail because they're awful awful people um i think we are post peak woke by, I don't, a year now, six, uh, uh, we're, we're a little past post peak woke because there is, um, our, our friend, Josh Crosshour coined this term, um, or I took what he said and imposed my view on it. What, Josh, I'm sorry if that's what I did, but it is the new moralists and the Trump era, the beginning of the Trump era, the American left, looked an awful lot like the American right did in the moral majority phase of the 1990s Clinton era. The Karens were the new church ladies. That's right. We have the right way of being. You have the wrong way of being. And if you disagree with us, it is not It is not ideological. It is not practical. It is wrong, right? You're doing it for the wrong reasons in the wrong ways. I listened to an interview with Michelle Obama that she did. My purpose? Uh, for, say again. On purpose, <laughs> <laughs> I listened to an interview with Michelle Obama. Uh, it was on it was on Conan O'Brien's podcast, and podcasts were just spooling. I was doing stuff, and she came out. And I started listening.
0: Conan O'Brien podcast is fantastic, and I, I I don't hate Michelle Obama. I just I don't seek her out as a guidepost for wisdom. And, th-
1: and this is why this is why I mention it is because I wouldn't. Uh, but she started talking about how it's important to see people as people. And to let people know that, you know, we're all human beings underneath all of this and dah, 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 and that we have to, people who you disagree with have their own reasons. And a lot of the reasons are that they don't understand each other and we have to understand them. And I was like, I'm sorry, where was this? This is the point. This was the whole point, which is if you, I think that the, the hubris of the American left post Iraq war and post financial panic of 2008, was we are just, you are unjust, we are right, you are wrong. Let We follow the science. We do all of this stuff. And of course, where did it take them? Where did it take us? Right back into the same disasters that we were before. Because of course, human nature is the problem, not the... (laughs) It is our nature to be this way. It is our nature to be arrogant. It's our nature to make these mistakes and do this stuff. And listening to this expression of humility from Michelle Obama and she who had really not been that way, right? And during her husband's ascent, who was really not that way, I thought maybe what's happening is that the chastening experience, this has not been a great century for the United States so far, right? We are not, we would not describe this if it is another American century so far, it is an American century by default, uh, so far. And hopefully, there has been enough screw upitude by everybody everywhere to convince us that we have to be a little more humble. We have to look at each other, and that before we police the joke space, right, before we go telling other people what they're doing is wrong, that we first remember, oh, I've screwed up, I've made all these mistakes, and to be a little bit more humane, and the only way that we save this, and I, I, when I speak to left audiences, I say the same thing as I say to right audiences, which is, it will require a coalition of people of goodwill, liberals and conservatives, left and right, to come together and be humane and and let this let this cloud pass over us for a period of time. Uh, that's the only way out. Bless your heart. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Uh, you,
0: you raise a interesting point, which I hadn't really thought about in these terms before. Which is, I think you're probably right that we we passed peak woke, but you know it's, uh, but these things when you chart them, they're like seismographs or cardiograms, right? We could hit another peak, right? There's, and um, so you have to look at the long trend line. And I, but I, I do kind of feel like some of this stuff is petering out but like one of the reasons why I brought up like parks and rec and stuff is I remember writing a column about this, where there's this episode where um, they're explaining um, uh, someone's explaining to the, what's her name? The, the teen, uh, the young woman, um, she's now on white Lotus. um, I'm spacing her name and the Chris Pratt character anyway. And she, they're explaining how to do laundry and yet, And he says, you have to separate the whites and the darks. And she says, that's racist. And there was a moment in like 2012, 2011 era kind of thing where there were a lot of those kinds of jokes on 30 Rock and on Parks and Rec and whatever that made fun of people who, um, that were sardonically making fun of people who always called everything racist. And then in the last 10 years, that problem has gotten a lot worse but um, let's, let's, let's say that we passed peak woke on the one hand. I was, cause when you first said it, I was like, yeah, but you know, we passed peak communism a long time ago and conservatives are still talking about the threat from Marxism. Right. So like, uh, the question is, you know, I'll put it this way. And on the other hand, it is remarkable. I mean, you were at Fox, I was at Fox, I was at national review It is astounding the degree to which the perception of a threat from Islam has evaporated. I mean, it's like 0.5% of of what it was at peak. I mean, I had friends telling me that, you know, whole swaths of the country were
1: already under Sharia law. Newt Gingrich's 2012 uh, candidacy, center plank of his platform defeat Sharia law. And I was like, bro, there's like 900,000 Muslims in the whole country. Uh, maybe Hamtramck, Michigan uh, may, may fall, but I feel that Des Moines remains. Safe. Yeah. I, I had someone in Southern California pick me up at an airport for a speech I
0: was doing at the Lincoln club. And she was explaining to me how um, UCLA is already completely under Sharia law. And I was like, I, f-
1: I feel like I would have read that. Uh, the chasteness the chasteness of the undergraduates alone the 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 uh conservatism of their dress certainly will reveal the power yes. of i mean like i mean
0: if it's see through is a burqa still a burqa
1: the mesh burkas of ucla <laughs>
0: <laughs> i can see your thong you infidel no but so like on the one hand, but that's but this is a good sign, right? I mean, it's like the 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 excessive. Like, I'm not downplaying there was a real threat from Islamic terrorism, and there still is. But you know, like, it's it it wasn't what a lot of people say it was said it was. So the question is is like, how long will if 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 the era of wokeness is going away? How long will it, will it take the for the the forces on the right that monetize anti wokeism to realize it and agree to it?
1: Do, are are going? They're going to need another enemy, right? Yeah. What What's the next enemy? Is basically the question. A lot of this is generational. Um. Uh. God bless our baby boomer. Uh, I was. I was very fortunate. Um. Uh, my. I had old parents. Uh. They were from the silent generation. Uh. My dad was a. Went to Korea. Uh. They were born in the '30s. Uh. That's how. Uh. That's how that worked. And. I did not have to have baby boomer parents, but we have gone through a thing where the first ever self-conscious generation, right? And this is a marketing phenomenon. The existence of the baby boom is a demographic spike brought on by the peace dividend at the end of the Second World War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also it was marketing. It was the first time it was the Pepsi generation. It's you. You're different than everything that ever. The most, as as you and I have talked about often before, the most important person in the whole wide world is you. And you hardly even know you. Um, That kind of thinking and the me generation and and, uh, Charles Murray writes in his book Coming Apart about the importance of the TV show 30 something uh, that a group of people for the first time are like, I am 30. I am in my 30s and I have problems and my joints ache and my children are difficult and what about the future? And they were told this is different for you and you're different from everything else. So as this cohort has moved through and we have worked hard to say, well, millennials are like this and that. Now there is another big uh, generational split that uh, culturally and demographically out there, which is digital natives versus non-digital natives. And that's a huge huge divide. And you and I are at the end of one and the beginning of the other. We're in the overlap part. But that's a huge division. But the uh, the effort to say like, well, this is what a zennial is like and this is what a millennial is like. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. But what we're living through is baby boomers wrecked everything. They took everything. They threw it down a flight of stairs. We don't go to church anymore. That's lame. We don't follow these rules anymore. That's lame. Now, by the way, it was their parents' generation that ended Jim Crow. It was their parents' generation that did that stuff, but they were there. They watched it on television and felt like they were a part of it. They took and credit for it. They took credit for it, right? It's like, well, just because oh, the big chill, don't get me started on the big chill. Just because you listen to Marvin Gaye does not mean that you marched on, on Selma. So th- we have this problem, which is that this cohort that did so much to crush the existing culture in America now is very frightened as they reach the end of their, as they shuffle off this mortal coil that all the institutions are trashed. Nobody believes in anything and all this stuff. Now, I'm not saying there were not those forces at work before them and all of that stuff, but it I, I just always want to say to these folks, what do you think your parents thought of you? In 1975, what do you think? Your parents said, you think they said, man, I love their drug use and their crazy music. It's great. No, your parents despaired. Your parents despaired of the me generation and all of this stuff and what was going on and bra burning and Woodstock. They despaired of all of this. And now they're doing the same thing all over again. So I guess the question, the answer to your question is just find out what Generation X is most likely to be afraid of. And we'll get ahead of it. We'll switch the dispatch to an all-fear, copper-clothing, pre-lubricated pocket <laughs> catheter network, and we will just find out what Generation X's greatest fear is, and we'll prey upon it hourly. Look, I, I, longtime listeners and longtime readers know, I mean, I have been
0: banging my spoon on my high chair about the stupidity of generational stereotyping for a very, very long time. And again, that's not to say that there aren't some generalities about generations that one can make. Of course there are. Um, um, but any, any cohort of people that is a significant cohort are going to have outliers going to have counterexamples, are going to have, you know, all sorts of things to it. There were a lot of very bad people in the greatest generation, right? Um, there were a lot of very conservative people among the baby boomers. Um, and a lot of them became more conservative over time, but at this, at the level of sweeping generalization, and I'm open to all sorts of corrections and caveats and all the rest. I think it is tra- incandescently obvious that Generation X is the best generation. I mean, clearly, and we, and yeah, I mean, we're like we're we're the last ones to grow up in a real culture, um, uh, 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 certainly a common culture, and um, uh, and even the and the baby boomers reeked all sorts of damage on, uh, on our society. And I have to say, so did the, the world war two generation guys. Like I'm great. I'm very happy that you won the world war two, but at every stage of their lives, uh, this is one of the good points in that how Strauss and how book, you know, at every stage in their lives, the constitutional and legal order was bent and reframed to cater That's to right. them. Remember when all those oldsters stormed Dan Rostenkowski's car because they wanted to do these minor tweaks to Social Security? They all caved because it was the greatest generation and you got to give them everything that they want, right? The GI Bill, give them everything that they want. I think the GI Bill was a good thing, but you can just follow them from the early 20s to shuffling off this mortal coil. At every turn, the greatest generation got special treatment. And the baby boomers were even worse because they looked at their parents' generation and said, You guys did this really cool, great stuff. We have to be heroes too. And, but they also wanted to be incredibly self indulgent. And if you read the Port Huron statement, you want to take all of their guitars and smash them against the wall of Delta House because they're all jackasses.
1: Big, big, big Lebowski. Uh, I, I drafted the Port Huron statement. Well, the first draft, not that <laughs> watered down version that they ended up with. Um, we are living in a time of building a new consensus. And the people in the United States who were born in the nineteen hundreds and the nineteen teens did make a lot of mistakes. Everything that you say is true about the New Deal, about Roe v. Wade, about an activist Supreme Court about like they were like making it up as they went along. Um, but they were making it up in part as they went along because something had to be made up, right uh, a a an order had to be created somewhere in the world. I love our um, colleague Kevin Williamson's term uh, a Eisenhowerian anarcho-capitalist, uh, Dwight David Eisenhower knew what had to happen, which is we've got to, the, the, the bouncing ball has to settle somewhere, right? We have to come up with a new consensus. We have to come someplace. I'm, uh, reading David Halberstam's, uh, uh, Korean war history right now uh was it, i think it's the coldest winter i'm sorry if i'm not getting it right uh and it's it's really fascinating for me as a snapshot of american political life 1950 to 1955 and all that was going on in america having to come up with what is the point of us being us because the point of america prior to 1941 was to expand and to be to to be the colossus, right? Uh, I recommend anybody who passes through Philadelphia go visit the site of the they had. It's called Centennial Park, and they built a city to commemorate the centennial in 1876 in Philadelphia, and some of it still remains. And you can go look at it and what America thought it was going to be like, and how excited Americans were about all that was happening, and. Until 1941, it was a young country trying to to reach the edge of the continent. A young country trying to to express itself. And then all of a sudden, we were the dog who caught the car. And then now, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You have become the colossus. What do you want to do with it? And it was really, really hard. We are at a point where the consensus that was forged between the silent and and I hate that I don't use the term greatest generation, but we'll call I'll say the World War II generation. Uh, the Korean and World War II generations and their kids. And that was reflected in Roe. That was reflected in a lot of things about, okay, just, I'm too tired to keep fighting. Let's just leave it here. And then we use that up over the, over the next 40 years, right? Over our lifetimes, we've used up that rather thin to begin with consensus. And now we're doing the very painful, difficult work. Of deciding, okay, what is the purpose of this endeavor? If and uh, is Ibram X Kendi correct that the purpose of this endeavor is to find uh, racism in the heart of every person <laughs> and drive the and drive them into the ground until they have atoned for their sins? Uh, is the purpose of this enterprise to make sure that uh, every everybody has a manufacturing job, as Josh Hawley would like? We're having this fight about what is the point of what we're doing. And we will come to a conclusion, right, because we will eventually, just like the people voting for speaker, will just tire of it, right? We will come to a decision about what this is that will last for the millennials' lifetime, that will last for the next cohort's lifetime, because we will simply tire of the fight and the consensus will harden at some point. From your lips. All right, my friend.
0: <laughs> um, I speaking of time I, I just I can't I can't do it. I gotta get out of here. Uh this was great. Thank you for doing this. We will see how uh how um prescient and, and prognosticatingly accurate we were um in about an hour
1: when this thing starts up. J- J- James Carvo was doing a monitor, Christian Science monitor breakfast on the morning of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh and Bill Salmon writes about it in his book. And uh, the news of 9/11 breaks during at, at, right as they're breaking up, and Carville grabs for the microphone and says, "Nothing that I said before this applies. Ignore everything that I said. so I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a Carville right at the end."
0: <laughs> All right, my friend, thank you very much for doing this. We will of course, uh, 2023 may may be known among remnant fans as, as the year of Styrwall. We'll just see. Thank you, sir. Okay, so Brother Starwald has left the studio. Um always good to catch up. I I I I feel like we did our due diligence in covering the news of the day even though it's going to be um rendered somewhat obsolete. Um but then we went off on a significantly acceptable um and substantive tangent. Um so that people who wanted the floor wax will get the floor wax and people who wanted the dessert topping will get the dessert topping and um Thanks for listening, and um, um, I really got nothing else to to say, except it would be great if you could become a subscriber to The Dispatch, so, you know, please do so, and um, I'll talk to you soon, and I'll see you next time.
1: Man, no you won't. This is a podcast.